Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. And visit SubChina.com to check out our wide range of reported pieces, our op-eds, videos, and of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeremy Goldcorn was unable to join, especially once he realized how much words like discourse and narrative were inevitably going to come up today on this episode. And as his friend and colleague, I must be respectful of his severe lexical allergies. Today, I am thrilled to have as our guest Rana Mitter, Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at St. Cross College, Oxford, and Director of the University China Center at Oxford. He has a new book out now called China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. And in it, he argues that the Second World War, the Kongrejanzheng, or War of Resistance against Japan, shaped and continues to shape the way China constructs its own national identity and understands its place in the world. It is a profound meditation on how this episode of China's Modern History, the evolving thinking about the war, the uses to which the war is put in contemporary Chinese political discourse, See, there's that word already, discourse, uh, how this is all really critical if we want to understand not only how China's domestic politics gets shaped, but also its foreign policy. Uh, the war figures very prominently, Rana convincingly demonstrates, in China's efforts to gain more discursive power globally. Discursive. There's another Jeremy allergy word. Anyway, and the, the results achieved internationally so far are not, as we shall see, particularly stellar. I highly recommend this title. So, Ron Emitter, congrats on this terrific book, and welcome back to Seneca. It's great to be back here, Kaiser. I think the last time that you, I, and I think Jeremy also actually did this, we were sprawled on the floor of your apartment in Beijing. So, you have uh, moved locations, but I think it was the Roman poet Horace who said, uh, you can run across the seas, but you can't change yourselves. So, let's hope we stay pretty, <laughs> and let's hope we stay pretty much the same as we carry on our conversation about China. Yeah. Okay, so that wasn't actually my apartment. My apartment was much nicer than that rat hole where we were, but uh, that was our producer's apartment. Dave, sorry about that, but your place was kind of awful. Uh, <laughs> but it was a great studio. Good for recording. So, 
Yeah, so uh, you say we've been on the show before. Actually, let me remind you, you were actually on another time when we did a show in late 2017 about the Nanjing Massacre uh, with Facing History and Ourselves. Uh, It was for the 80th anniversary, I believe, of that atrocity. And listeners who haven't heard that show or the one we did on Rana's book, um, actually, you were in, in Beijing. It was September... 2015 and you were there for the parade right i was there for the for, there for the parade not actually parading myself but i was doing some <laughs> <laughs> some commentary for uh the cctv on their english uh channel where i was able to make a few slightly cheeky comments i think uh, of the type that foreigners are sometimes allowed to get away with on chinese media i know whereas uh, if you're from the home country you have to be uh, a little better behaved but also it was i have to say an opportunity as someone who as you know kaiser i have spent a lifetime probably too much of my lifetime studying China's engagement with the Second World War period and seeing that, you know, astonishing in all senses of the word parade of soldiers, weaponry, and of course, you know, 90 plus year old veterans in Tiananmen Square uh, on that occasion was, was quite something. So definitely go check out those shows uh, if you haven't heard them. They're, they're some of the best that we've done uh, because Rana is always just such an amazing guest, as you shall now see. One of the first arguments that you make in the book, Rana, uh, is about what Chinese, uh, whether they were nationalists or communists or even collaborationists, wanted from the war itself. You contrast China's narrative for why we fight, uh, what is what its actual stated war aims were, uh, the way that it framed the struggle uh, with the narratives that we hear from the U.S. and the U.K., which at the time were, were of course, cast in terms of, of freedom, of democracy, of, of survival in the case of, of Britain. Uh, so what were, in fact, China's wartime goals as seen through Chinese eyes? Well, as ever, because you put your finger on it, this is a really key question, the very central question of why were the Chinese fighting in the first place? I mean, the the most uh, uh, immediate answer to that question, of course, is that they got themselves invaded by the Japanese in 1937, and that, of course, pushed, pushed them into a situation where they had to fight whether they wanted to or not. But I think the wider reason that looking at war aims and war goals is important is that Certainly, those of us who are Westerners, I'm you know, very much aware that your podcast travels to an awful lot of places around the world, and of course, including many listeners in China itself. But if we are looking from... <laughs> we hope. <laughs> we hope, anyway. But if we are looking from the Western perspective, then, of course, we tend to have a narrative, uh, what I call it actually in the book, a circuit of thinking about what the war means that has a lot of words in it like democracy, freedom liberty. In other words, the narratives that we know that in Europe, the Americans, the British were there to fight the Nazi menace. And although the Asian war, frankly, even now is much less well known in the Western world than the European one, something similar said about the Empire of Japan. But this is a story that has tended to cut out two actors. One is the Soviet Union. And with apologies, we probably won't talk too much about that one today because it's not our subject. But the other one is, of course, China. And some of the basic facts and figures, which you kindly let me give uh, your listeners, well, five years ago during that 2015 podcast, but if they don't want to turn to it right now, just a reminder that we're talking about the longest theatre of war for any of the Allied powers, 1937 to 45. 1931, if you believe the Chinese um, governmental version, but I, I have some issues yeah, with that. Uh, well, we'll talk about that. Well, we might talk about that because I have some issues with that. But we'll start in 1937, I, I think. More than 10 million deaths, more than 100 million Chinese becoming refugees within their own country. And of course, not incidentally, holding down at their height more than half a million Japanese troops. So this was a substantial contribution. And the question is, why would they do it? And what I suggest quite early on is that if you look at the key goals 
that the major leaders, but also some of those who were involved in trying to bring about social change in China during those years, uh, encompassed. It was very little, to be honest, I think, to do with democracy, at least in the liberal sense of the word. Greater political participation by the wider population, maybe, but actually order. Order is one of those things that really came about. And all of us, you know, who've dealt with China know the word, even now, Luan, you know, this idea of chaos, tends to still be a very, very um, obsessive one, almost, in the minds of many people. And that, I think, is something that comes from an experience of a society which so frequently is overturned by turbulence, by order, and by turmoil. And I think by trying to find that idea that there was going to be some sort of new order, some sort of stability, uh, stable borders, of course, I mean, perhaps more important for top leaders than necessarily for ordinary citizens, but certainly as part of that mixture, as well as the idea that maybe finally the Chinese could run matters for themselves rather than being told by outsiders what to do. While democracy, liberty and so forth were not absent from that language, I think we ought to have to look things in the eye and say that really they're not at the top of the list of what we see most of the Chinese thinkers, leaders, policymakers, and actually probably combatants actually thinking about at that time. Order and sovereignty, right. Uh, I think this is going to resonate with anyone who's really looked at modern Chinese history and understood how for many Chinese, the nightmare that they conjure up again and again in their own stories is a very different one than the one that we conjure up. Uh, this was put really nicely by our friend uh, Jeremiah Jenny, who was talking about how Hollywood uh, in, in, you know, in comic books or in movies or whatever, uh, it's always some re reworked version of, of the Nazis, if not the actual Nazis themselves. The big fear is it's a surfeit of political authority, of fascism, of totalitarianism, and that by contrast, uh, the nightmare of the Chinese imagining is chaos and disorder. Uh, it's something very much still alive in the collective Chinese consciousness and its memory. Um, there's a great book that we talked to the author, Sulman Wasif Khan, uh, called Haunted by Chaos, which is you know very much about how uh, the fear of disorder uh, informs Chinese grant strategy. Anyway, Rana, um, so we can get a sense for how the war transformed Chinese nationalism, but I think we first need a sense of what Chinese nationalism looked like before the war. Uh, you know, and I think this is very important, that nationalism per se wasn't so widely felt, that it wasn't certainly in rural China or among the illiterate population. The peasantry uh, didn't have a national consciousness yet. They didn't think of themselves necessarily as Chinese, uh, just like, you know, the French didn't. I mean, rather, it was, it was you know, limited to uh, educated, the, the urban Chinese. Among these elites, let's just, let's just look at the elites now. Uh, how did the actual content, though, of the ideology of nationalism change during the war from what it was before the war broke out? I mean, I think you've described a, a situation of hyper-colonialization uh, before the war and a, a kind of inchoate and protean, I think those are the words you used so nicely, uh, kind of a, a, a sense of national. Well, I'm terrified of using words like inchoate and protean, Kaiser, because if uh, Jeremy's listening out there somewhere, he's probably putting him on his list along with discourse. So <laughs> big shout out to you. So, Jeremy, I, I apologize in, uh, in in advance. And I must say the idea of hyper-colonization, which is a wonderful way of thinking of how China was under imperialist domination, I have to say I, I, I took with full acknowledgement, I hasten to add, from the great um, historian uh, Ruth Rogaski, who's based over at Vanderbilt right, uh, Uni right. University. But the idea itself, let, let, let's get to that. And I'm so glad we brought up the idea of nationalism, because actually, I think it's one of the terms, the single terms that's most understood in the wider Anglophone 
I'm not going to say discourse, but let's say conversation, discussion uh, about Chinese identity. It's quite often used to equate to the words, the, the word nationalism is quite often used to equate to xenophobia or anti-foreign feeling. And while, of course, we all know that can be and often is one element of it, it doesn't encompass anything like the whole. So I would say that before the war with Japan breaks out, and actually one of the reasons why that Second World War is so important, is that you have that very painful transition at the end of the 19th century from the old Qing Empire, which essentially had a whole variety of modern ways of thinking forced upon it, whether it wanted them or not, by essentially the violent invasion of the Western world from the Opium Wars onward. Now, we all know that, uh, and I say we all know in that very confident way because this is the Seneca podcast and I know what kind of listeners you get, informed listeners, that there was no there was no sense in which the gunboats of the 19th century were the very first appearance of that kind of, uh, um, of Western thinking. You know, the Jesuits had been there long before and there are plenty of other culture interactions. But in terms of having some some force that forcibly brought this huge level of thinking that was drawn from essentially, you know, the politics and society of the industrialising West, you know, the post-Napoleonic war, British, French, German, and ultimately Japanese states that basically want, and Americans too, you you, you, you Americans always like to oh, think yeah. that you're not imperialist, it's, it's everyone else, it's us in Britain, but I have to say that you were part of that, that too. Along with, of course, the gunboats and the opium, also new modes of thinking, and the idea of nationhood and there I'm using it in, in in the technical sense of the idea of a united self-identifying people who consider that their legitimacy comes from the idea of the people themselves rather than from some cosmic or uh, supernatural or numinous to use another good word I think um, source of authority it doesn't have to be democratic you know we the people the United States is very democratic the People's Republic of China well not liberal democratic anyway but the idea of the people is really strong so what's the pre-war nationalism about in early 20th century China put it it's most simple probably simplistic even I would say that it's about trying to define that idea of what the people is and giving them right. a sense of collective identity. And you're absolutely right, you know, it starts with the elites, because they're the people who identify themselves in this way in the first place. You know, these are people sitting, well, you know, there's this 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 young guy, Mao Zedong, you may have heard of him. Uh, he's sitting as a library assistant in Beijing in the 1910s, 1920s, up at Peking University. And he's reading widely in both traditional Chinese writings and international writings, Marxist writings too, and using that, as so many other young people were, to formulate the idea of nationhood. It inspires, of course, Sun Yat-sen, the great Chinese nationalist leader, his disciple Chiang Kai-shek, who becomes, of course, ultimately the leader of China in 1926-27. Very different politics, people who were often at daggers, daggers drawn for much of the 20th century. But I would say the one thing that unites all these people, Mao, Jiang, Sun, whoever, Wang Jingwei, the man who collaborated with the Japanese, and makes them different from their pre-modern predecessors is that they share that idea of the nation and the nation state as the ultimate vehicle mm. through which Chinese destiny is going to be fulfilled. And that, of course, is where the shattering experience of the Second World War makes a huge difference, both in destroying the dream in the short term, but I would argue solidifying it in the longer term. And focusing it. And focusing, Absolutely. focusing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, very yeah, much so. Yeah. 
So, so let's identify the major elements of the Chinese understanding then of the war of resistance and, and how those have undergone change. And then maybe look at a couple of them and explain what seems to have brought about the rethinking, you know, when the change in the narrative happened and how it has, you know, reshaped, as you argue, China's domestic and foreign policy. So what are some of the inflection points? Uh, you offer a kind of periodization that I'd love for you to maybe share with our, our listeners. Absolutely. So... One of the things that I think makes the Chinese experience of World War Two, and by the way, I keep calling it that, uh, Kaiser, rather than necessarily using the Chinese or translation of the Chinese term, the War of Resistance against Japan, because I think it's really important to stress not just in China, but in the rest of the, 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 the world, that the Chinese experience of war was very much part of that global war. Right. And the Chinese themselves, we shouldn't think of it as separate in that in, in, in that sense. But I stress that point also because for a very long time, by which I mean maybe the years from 1949 up to the early 1980s, in a sense, China's wartime experience was not part of the global uh, language or conversation mm-hmm. about the war itself. It didn't really kind of latch on to, you know, the American story, the Pacific War or, you know, the, the European War, uh, all these other these other things. And there were two reasons. The first one, I lay at the blame, I lay the blame at the feet of the Western world, particularly the US, the fact that China, for whatever reason, was isolated from the West during the Cold War. And I think that makes a difference. But we then have to look at the reasons within China itself. And those are the ones that I think you kindly pointed out that I I go through in some detail in in, in the book. And put broadly speaking, the war against the Japanese was very much present in the politics of Mao's China, but it was always, I would say not even a second violin, maybe like a third violin, not as as small as a piccolo. It was- A viola. Or a viola, yeah, well, everyone always makes fun of the viola players, so maybe that's the right one to have. You know, there are are model operas which, you know, pay uh, attention to the the war against the Japanese. There are, of course, portraits and statues of heroes of resistance, but all of these things had something in common. The vast majority, not 100%, but certainly, you know, well over 90, were associated only with the Communist Party's contribution right. against the, uh, the the Japanese. Um, in addition, I think it's fair to say, and this may sound in some ways slightly ironic, of course some of the horrific atrocities, the rape of Nanjing, which, as you reminded me, you and I and Jeremy talked about uh, three years ago in 2017, it was commemorated in the city of Nanjing, you know, in the Mao era. But if you look at the relative importance of these things at that time in the 1950s, 60s, even 70s, it was very minor compared to class struggle, culture revolution, and actually, of course, a huge amount of pushback against the Americans. And we may yet get uh, in later in the conversation, perhaps to a contrast with the Korean War, which, of course, has been Absolutely. very much in, will, the, yes. uh, in, the, in, in the news in recent, recent weeks. But sticking to the Second World War, that Mao period really saw not the disappearance, but the real downgrading of that World War II experience in the national myth that the Chinese Communist Party told about itself. And there was one, there were several reasons, but I'll go for the one most central one. And again, you know, to many listeners, I think this will be known, but worth saying, the Kuomintang, the Chinese Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, really played a very central role in the resistance to the Japanese, including the majority of the set-piece battles. And we went into more detail on this in the, the earlier podcast, but it's worth worth saying again. This, of course, was politically toxic from the point of view of the Communist Party. It really was not 
feasible in any meaningful sense to say those appalling guys on Taiwan who we you know chased off the mainland uh, however many years ago and are still there waiting to come back well actually they did do some good they did have actually some contribution to make in the great war against the Japanese so essentially all the way up to the the early 1980s you have this very constricted very limited view of what the anti-Japanese war was about in which it basically was part of the grand trajectory to ultimate victory of the Chinese communists in 1949. In other words, the World War II story was a sort of a, a way station, a very important way station, but a way station on the path to Mao standing in front of Tiananmen Square in 1949 and saying, the Chinese people have stood up. And then, as you've been kind enough to say, the book says that essentially, in the reform era, in the early 1980s, everything changes and changes in a really big way. So let me just recapitulate a bit here. Uh, in the three decades after 49, there was, as you put it, very little connection to other circuits of memory about the war. Uh, there was little interaction with them. This wasn't just due to China's relative isolation because, as you say, during the same time, the war itself just wasn't something that was such a prominent feature of popular discourse within China. It was, and and you're absolutely right. And it, it was really surprising to me in my very early visits to visits to China uh, how it it didn't figure in. Even when you went to, for example, uh, the the uh, prison slash museum in Chongqing, uh, as as you'll probably, well, I, mean, I will I hope we get a chance to talk about this. Uh, uh, there was an emphasis not on the anti-Japanese war, but rather on uh, America's collaboration with the nationalists and in, in repressing and, and torturing uh, communists. Anyway, but looking back at the 75 years since the war's end, it seems to me that KMT and CCP versions of nationalism actually had, have they been on more convergent or parallel paths or have they significantly diverged? I mean, because I, I look at I look at the early period and and there are a lot of features that they really do seem to have in common. Um, yep, you know, yep, that's yeah. very very much the case. I mean, picking up that story, but you know, moving of course at a, at a bit of a pace in the early nineteen eighties, we see exactly what you've just said, Kaiser, which is that in some ways the newly emerging story of what happened in World War Two on the mainland became a sort of parallel, a kind of mirror image, but in the sense of a reflection of what had been happening in Taiwan for quite a while. Again, putting it perhaps overly simplistically, but usefully, up to that point, the people in Taiwan, particularly the nationalists who had been controlling the discourse there, see, I've done discourse as well now, um, were people who had basically said, yeah, you know, they didn't deny that the communists had, had played a role uh, completely, particularly after things had liberalised in Taiwan in the in the 70s and 80s. But they did basically put forward the idea that the Kuomintang themselves had really done most of the fighting and played the major role. Now, this, of course, was for a long time a stark contrast with the mainland where it was communists and nothing else. But in the early 1980s, you get this push towards actually saying that, look, there needs to be more acknowledgement of the nationalist role as well. And therefore, for the first time, you get even, you know, hardcore communist figures like Hu Xiaomu, you know, who's personal, personal secretary to Mao. He was with him in Yan'an. Uh, you know, this is someone who wrote incredibly hardcore um, uh, books of, of communist theory and accounts of history. And even he was saying that it was important to broaden out the story and, in fact, gave his sort of blessing, as it were, as a sort of party elder to the building of the immense museum 
commemorating the War of Resistance, which is even now based at the Marco Polo Bridge, where, of course, the war itself broke out in 1937. I think you've been, um, Kaiser, I'm sure, and I think, you know, yeah, well, yeah, anyone who hasn't been but is in Beijing, do, do go and see it. It's well worth seeing. Well, from the very earliest days, from 1987 when it was opened, it did acknowledge the nationalist role in a real shift of official historiography. And by building this huge concrete museum, it was mm-hmm. making, in the most solid way possible, the story clear that actually the mainland and the and the and the, and the Taiwan side actually had quite a lot to, to share, and of course there was a very pragmatic reason for that, which is that and I'll put something to you actually, uh, Kaiser, because I've often thought this. It seems to me that in some ways, possibly the moment at which there was the greatest possibility of a genuine reunification between the mainland and Taiwan might have been that moment, because at that brief moment between the early eighties and nineteen eighty nine, both Taiwan and the mainland were liberalizing authoritarian states. I think that Taiwan was liberalizing a lot faster than the mainland, but they were both going in a somewhat similar looking direction. And of course, after that, the mainland's become a lot more authoritarian and and Taiwan has become a lot more democratic. So the divergence has spread and also, of course, the divergence in their stories about the war as well. So I always, you know, posit this alternative history in which the KMT prevailed in the Civil War. And I can actually imagine that the nationalism of a nationalist-led China wouldn't be all that different. I mean, we can look at a lot of points of congruity. I mean, there's, I mean, the China of the Nanjing decade was not by any means a liberal polity. It prioritized, I think, what all Chinese parties to the war did. It was about nationalism. It was about sovereignty. It was about the establishment of order. And and what you also describe is sort of a moral mission to free those still colonized overseas. I mean, both of them it was of a very different flavor, but Chinese communist internationalism and the and Chiang Kai-shek's opposition uh, to imperialism and colonialism during that time weren't all that much in 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 comp- are in in conflict. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, uh, Kaiser. I mean, you know, if we think about something like anti-imperialism, it is one of the phrases that we associate above all with Mao theory of the three worlds. Um, Joanne Lai being sent to Bandung in 1955. And actually, you know, in these days of Belt Road Initiative, remembering that the first uh, Chinese involvement in engineering in Africa was something like the Tanzan Railway, which was quite a while ago. So, you know, that's very much the CCP story. But people tend to forget that it was the Guomindang, first of all, who had um, Chiang Kai-shek making gestures actually during World War II, like visiting Nehru and Gandhi in India during the middle mm-hmm, of World War mm-hmm. II. And then beyond that, actually, setting up again uh, an organization which isn't necessarily very well well known, but being a founder member of something called ECAFI, the Economic Commission for Asia and the Far East, uh, which had its headquarters first in Shanghai, nationalist Shanghai, basically a predecessor of you know the World Bank and various other development organizations, with very much the idea that the Guomindang government was not just going to talk about liberation for Asia. It was also going to push for funding and for capacity to actually do something about it. As you say, it's kind of an alternative history because the civil war of the 1940s basically knocked the nationalists out of that that mode, you know, pretty much permanently. But that doesn't mean that the ideas weren't there and in some ways were in competition with the communist ideas, but were also very much a product of the wartime years, a sort of realization again that if they got to build that order we were talking about earlier, then things would have to change. It would not just be business as usual. Imperialism couldn't be allowed to survive on the, the foreign front, but also China itself should change and become a kind of exemplar for the rest of the world. And just to tease at the end of that thought a little bit, when I look at what China's doing today with Belt and Road and also boasting at you know great length right. about internal reform, there's you know, you could see the Guomindang 
project of the late 1940s shining through that whole sort of idea. You know that if he'd had the money and the power and the capacity to do it, Chiang Kai-shek would have loved to run a Belt and Road Initiative. It's exactly where his head very, would Very, very much so. I think that, that what Zhang wanted to get out of it, uh, the, the role that he envisioned for China and uh, for the Western powers, especially the U.S. and the region, uh, it doesn't really look that different than uh, what it did in the early reform period for, for China. I mean, I think he had uh, very high hopes for still establishing a new order in China with his regime still, you know, at its center. Um, and yeah, I, I, that's something we should definitely lay out. Um, your last book benefited very greatly uh, from access to Chiang Kai-shek's diary when it was open to scholars in 2006 at the Hoover Institute uh, at Stanford. Uh, among the other scholars who made ample use of it was a guy named Yang Tianshi, uh, who wrote Searching for the Real Chiang Kai-shek, or uh, Searching for the Real Chiang Kai-shek, or Zhao Xing. Zhao Xing, the Chiang you, you suggest that, that this maybe was another moment when you saw convergence of narratives across the strait, no? because uh, this was, uh, it was, it was an interesting moment there. And this is much later. This is another one of those periods where there was uh, that glimmer of hope of convergence uh, in the late 2000s before, in the period just before the Olympics. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, first I should pay tribute. I mean, there are many great scholarly works that have come out of China first and foremost about this period and we Western scholars would not be able to do the work we did without learning from our Chinese colleagues first so Yang Tianshu's book which you've mentioned is is a really fine example of that using those uh, those diaries but one of the things that I found really interesting in being able to talk to uh, actually not Yang Tianshu in this case but various other scholars some of who will remain nameless for reasons that I think are probably understandable in the, in the current uh, uh, circumstances is some of the kind of, you know, almost old timers tales of what it was like actually hanging out for the first time with their Taiwan counterparts back in the 1980s uh, yeah. and 90s as a sort of forerunner to the 2000s of what you're talking about. So, you know, one of them told us with a kind of twinkle in his eye of someone from the, the, the Beijing side that when they first arrived, the Taiwan co- uh, colleagues started saying, uh, <laughs> you know, the commie, commie, <laughs> the, commie, the commie bandits have turned up, which uh, is uh, a kind of form of affectionate greeting, obviously. And I think that that history, and one of the Points the book makes is that there's quite a lot in it, and I freely confess this at, at this point, but you know, don't turn off. There's a lot in it at the beginning about historiography, quite you know, sort of detailed accounts of academic debates. But my point is that you can't understand the developments of the 2000s and the way in which the mainland and China were quite close to each other without understanding that one of the things that bound them together for a while was that shared history of the wartime experience. And that came actually from shared academic experience first, which then filtered into the public sphere through more accessible forms of history like television Mm -hmm. shows, Mm -hmm. movies, and even actually sort of joint conferences in which mainland and Chinese officials, uh, so mainland and Taiwan officials and scholars came together. I think the, the kind of peak moment of that, which feels like a million years ago, but actually is only five years ago, was that same year, 2015, when I dropped in on, on you in uh, in Beijing at your producer's... Yeah, you very... talked about that in your book. That was amazing. Yeah, there's the, 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 just the, the convergence then. Uh, I mean, wow, what a moment. And now, of course, we're Please just in a completely different sort of... Well, I was going to say, it's, it's just it's a different... I mean, you know, I'd just come from Taiwan at that, that, on that occasion where uh, Ma Ying-jil, who was then your know, president, had uh, held basically a big symposium with historians and officials and all sorts of folks. And we did... And, and lots of mainlanders. That was the thing. Lots and lots of people came over from uh, Zhongguo Dalu. And as part of that, there was clearly a statement being made that this is the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, and this is a shared experience across the Taiwan Straits. That's right. But fast forward to now, 
the, the, the discourses are just completely different. Um, in Taiwan, you know, for some years we've had the DPP in power and the DPP, you know, their, 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 their take is an autonomy for Taiwan. Therefore, a shared experience of that Guomindang history is not really part of that discourse. But, you know, since Taiwan is still a liberal democracy, people are perfectly free to put forward that idea. It's just not the one in power. What I'm hearing within the last, you know, kind of get the news scoops here on, on, on Seneca, but what I've heard from academic contacts within the last few, you know, weeks, certainly, and months, I'd say, in mainland China is that actually, once again, there is a hardening of attitudes even towards that Guomindang story. There's a lot more emphasis this year on the CCP and its contribution. So there's almost in the mainland to a bit of a stepping back from the Guomindang story. It's not complete. Mm -hmm. You will know that, of course, after being banned for a year, the movie Babai, the 800, a uh, big box right. office hit in, in China. And that, of course, is a story about the Guomindang and their last stand in 1937 in, in, in Shanghai. But overall, I would say that the, the convergence that we saw maybe five years ago in terms of that uh, that wartime history between the mainland and Taiwan is now much more of a divergence. And I'm not sure whether the two will, will come back together again anytime very soon. Indeed. Rana, your book is about China's efforts to recast the narrative of the war, both at home and internationally. Uh, this isn't something that you just infer. I mean, lest anyone think that you're just merely inferring this intention on the part of China's leadership. I'm mean, the intention to, you know, remake the rest of the world's understanding of China's wartime experience and to deepen its appreciation for China's wartime contributions. I, I want to note that it's actually made quite explicit and by none other than Xi Jinping himself. Actually, I thought it was kind of funny that you hold off this quote until like page 223 in the book, but you quote Xi Jinping in an address that he gave uh, five years ago at that in that, that moment, uh, July 30th, 2015. And I think it's worth reading out loud here. I'm going to do this here. The goal, she says, is to reconsider the great path of the Chinese people's war of resistance and confirm the great contribution that the war of resistance made to the victory in the world anti-fascist war and show our upholding of the results of the victory of the Second World War and determination for international peace and justice. She goes on to say, we must encourage international society accurately to recognize the position and the role of the world anti-fascist war of the Chinese People's War of Resistance. That is completely just on the nose. I mean, there's just no, no ambiguity there. Uh, but what, what you raise, I think, is this really intriguing idea that China's revamping of its wartime narrative and its wish to project that narrative and have it heard more broadly is driven in large part by China's desire to shift the foundations of its international relations, of its foreign relations from something that's purely pragmatic, you know, from realism to creating moral standing and add, to add moral weight uh, that China wants to create an ethically constituted story. Uh, as you say, to help its narrative take hold, not only in Chinese society, but also to buttress China's moral standing globally. So what's the logic here? I mean, why should China see its status as a victor in the Second World War, the fact that it was present at the beginning or whatever, as as bestowing on Beijing more moral authority and, and, and give it a right to reshape the region? And can this be done 75 years after the fact? So You've put your finger on, on, on the duality within the dilemma for the Chinese Communist Party, uh, I would say, Kaiser, what they're trying to do and whether it can be done or not. I mean, that idea that 
societies, countries, peoples, nations create for themselves that phrase ethically constitutive stories actually comes from the American political scientist Roger Smith who wrote a fantastic right. book called Stories of Peoplehood and that's where I took the, the, the phrase from. But I think it describes what China is up to really strongly. Because if we mm-hmm. step back mm-hmm. from the question that everyone a few hundred miles north of where you are right now in North Carolina in Washington DC is thinking about when they're not thinking about uh, voting. I have to say we're recording this on the day of the US election 2020. Um, yes, I don't know when yes. anyone's listening. You may listen to this five years from now, but at this point, so, uh, you know, if it turned out there was a military coup and uh, uh, in fact, uh, Nancy Pelosi rode in a tank and became president, then, you know, you heard it here first. Um, but, you know, in Washington DC on days that are not the election day, the China question is clearly very much at the forefront of people's minds. And, you know, I always hear, and you running sub China, Kajra must hear this even more. You know, the question: What does China want? What does it want to, you know, want right, to get? Right. And of course, at some level, some of the answer comes from the fact that China's economy is growing so hugely. It has the BRI, it has its military. In other words, it has strength, it has power. I would say it even has respect. I, I don't think that actually people t- people often fear China, but they don't uh, necessarily treat it uh, trivially in any way, in a way that they might have done twenty or thirty years ago. But my contention is that that isn't enough. And the reason that it's not enough, or the reason I'd say it's not enough, is the other thing that I'm sure you've heard many you know, Chinese friends and, 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 and others say to you, which is how can China get soft power? You know, how can it persuade right. people to think that you know, we, we want to do what the Chinese want, 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 want us to do? And I think the war actually fits into this in a really important way. Because if you think about one of the things that made the American story so powerful, both in Europe and Asia, in the Cold War era, it was essentially the price they paid for that narrative of World War Two. You know, the idea of liberty, democracy, Frank Capra's movies, why we fight. You know, it's in the title. You know, Frank Capra makes movies, right. why we fight, to explain that it's for these values. And China, I think, is now in a position where it says, well, OK, America, if basically the reason that you get to hang around the Asia Pacific and dominate things even now 75 years on is because you played blood and treasure in the 1940s to get there, well, so did we. We had, you know, all the things I mentioned before, the 10 million dead, the holding down of the half million Japanese uh, troops, all of all of those factors. And therefore, China, too, should be able to benefit from the feeling of not just being a strong power, as the United States was and has been, mm-hmm but a moral power that has the right to be there. And I'd say that, you know, there are many examples which I go through in the book, but the one I, I like, partly because I keep hearing it, and you mentioned uh, Xi Jinping. I will freely confess to, to your listeners, um, Kaiser, I have not been hanging out with Xi Jinping very much recently, so I haven't <laughs> got it his mouth. But I was actually just, the very last overseas trip I took before lockdown back in February was to Munich for the Munich Security Conference, where one of the keynotes was Wang Yi, the, the foreign minister. And the opening line he had, and bearing in mind he was pretty much staring at Mark Secretary of Defense Mark Esper across the room at the uh, the same time, uh, you know, he was making a point, was that you, meaning all of you Westerners, should not forget that China was the first country to sign the UN Charter in 1945. And of course, that is absolutely mm-hmm. technically true. Uh, it was actually signed by Sun Tzu-wen uh, and a delegation, I think of 11 Chinese, most of whom were Kuomintang, but there were a few neutrals and one communist uh, was uh, Dong Biwo. Um, but the point is that the Mao, the Mao China of you know, 40, 50 years ago 
was, of course, alienated from the United Nations. It didn't really acknowledge their legitimacy for a very long time until you know they were brought back in, let alone arguing that one of China's reasons to feel that it was the, the bastion of a moral order was that it had fought in World War II and therefore earned the right to sign the charter and, of course, be a P5 member of the UN Security Council. So that's now changing. And again, I summarise it in a way by saying if... The primary story, and you know, to be fair, it is still the primary story that China, mainland China, the communist China, Chinese state is telling about itself is of history beginning in 1949 with Mao's uh, arrival on the rostrum in front of the Forbidden City. Then it's now substituting, in many cases, an alternative story in which modern Chinese history starts in 1945. In other words, with the victory on the Allied side against the fascists, in which China is also present at the creation in Dean Acheson's, uh, the US Secretary of State, Dean Acheson's term, and also a co-maker of that moral liberal international order that um, all of us claim to value so much. And just a final thought on, on that, they have been given huge amounts of leeway to run away with telling that story, whether it's entirely plausible or not in the last four years, because the person they're pointing their finger at is the man who, as I speak to you today, is currently president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, because he has been so hostile to that international order. And that has let right. basically the Chinese take ownership of it as their World War II gift to the world, rather than the Americans' World War II gift to the world, on the grounds the Americans don't seem to want it anymore. And yet this has failed to gain traction. Let's be let's be completely blunt about this. Uh Despite this having been a project that Beijing has pursued now for like three decades, really, uh, let's talk about why. And, and maybe here we have to talk a, a bit about how the West, broadly speaking, has understood the war in China. And, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about this, but maybe we can start about the, the problematic influence of, of two major books that you talk about. Now, one is Chalmers Johnson's Peasant Nationalism and Communist Power. And the other is Barbara Tuckman's Stillwell and the American Experience in China. I mean, it's funny because I think that if there's a single book in the English language that stands out as the most prominent can be subverter of what you call the Stillwell white paradigm, that would be your your last book. I mean, that was a fantastic, I think, uh, you know, revisionist account of, well, I mean, it, it looks at all the problems, I think, in, in Barbara Tuckman's otherwise, I mean, still, I think, a very important book. Uh, so let, let's talk about that. What is what is at the root of of this failure? I mean, I don't. I feel like maybe they could have focus group tested this message in, in the West and, and realized that it really it wasn't gonna. It, I I don't think that a lot of people have really rethought um, the, the 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 moral uh, sort of rightness of of China uh, taking up that position because of a new understanding of its role in the Second World War. Yeah, I think it's not spread widely. I mean, first of all, actually, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that the idea of the Stillwell white paradigm, in other words, the idea of Vinegar Joe Stillwell, the American chief of staff during the war, and the American reporter Theodore White, who was in China, was actually pioneered and invented, I should say, by the great Cambridge historian Hans van der Ven. I do recommend his book, mm -hmm. China at War, in particular, which talks in, in huge detail uh, uh, about uh, about that. But it's certainly a, a viewpoint that I've, I've, I've looked to... Uh, uh, to, to, to draw on in, in terms of understanding that, that question. But to get to the, the contemporary significance of it, you know, why is it that that 
heroic Chinese story. And, you know, I genuinely believe there is a lot of heroism in it. You know, this was a country that could easily have surrendered to Japan a year in, in 1938, become part of the Japanese empire, and we'd never have heard of China again other than as a, as, as a Japanese colony. So, logically, neither Chiang nor Mao should have fought against the Japanese, and yet, of course, we know that they very much, uh, very much did. So, I don't doubt the, the genuine, um, you know, kind of heroics of resistance underpinning the story, and yet, it doesn't have much traction outside China. So, I'll give two brief reasons, if I may. One is sort of ideological and broad-ranging, and the other one is more pointed and emotional, you might uh, you might say. So the broad one is this. Think back again to you know what we were talking about a little while ago about the American, and beyond that, I think you know the Western story of you know why we fought, why World War Two, and those stories about liberty, democracy, and those sorts of uh, of ideas. Now we all know that they were deeply flawed, hypocritical in many ways, you know all of that, and yet they have a resonance that still stays with us today. You don't have to have that sort of resonance to make it work. And the obvious counterexample is the Soviet Union and now Russia, where I think actually insulting the memory of World War II has officially become a crime in Russia. And even the Chinese haven't gone quite yeah. that far. So you don't have to be so democratic and liberal to make it work. But it has its resonance. The problem is, I think I say so. At least within Russia. At least within, at least within Russia. Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent there's been at least a sort of grudging recognition that, you know, I, I think we all realize that really. Slow and coming, the, though. Yeah. It's and, slow and, slow and, and, and I think that actually, it actually underscores your point. That, that it was that sort of, you know, freedom and democracy yeah. narrative that was that, ultimately so that, compelling. That makes it very compelling. And then contrast China. I mean, as I say, slightly flippantly, but not entirely in the book. Saying saving the world for democracy was the purpose of World War II has a fine ring to it, even in China. Saying saving the world for consumerist authoritarianism, which might be one description <laughs> of what you know China is uh, uh, today. Um, doesn't I, I've, ha- I've started borrowing that phrase of yours. Uh, I was usually saying technocratic, but I, consumerist is is probably better. You're, so yeah, I, I've liberally stolen that that phrase from st- you. Now, steal, so, aw- thank you. steal away. The point is that it's a difficult <laughs> thing to go around putting on a t-shirt, and I think that you know broadly. <laughs> speaking, it provides one of the things that, you know, at some level, from the Chinese point of view, and I know that on this podcast and elsewhere, guys, uh, you've frequently, frequently discussed the wider question of why, when actually quite a lot of people in China, you know, are genuinely happy enough with the system that exists, is it so difficult for China to sell the idea of that system uh, system anywhere else? But mm-hmm. the flip side of that, and when I said there's also a sort of emotional and slightly pointed thing is this, I think that when the Chinese have tried to use vehicles, which you might find elsewhere to tell that story, they have found that those vehicles do not work in the international market. And I'll just give one example because it's one that I spent some time pursuing and it, it gave me a few smiles, I have to say. Uh, I, I have to say that I hope the book has a certain number of moments that can make people laugh, actually, despite the fact it is about war and nationalism and things that are not necessarily uh, always uh, entirely um, a, a yuck fest. But basically this is this movie um, which has gone under several titles, either called The Bombing or uh, the, the yeah. final title was yeah. you know Unbreakable Spirit, which was basically... Bruce Willis. Well, Bruce Willis was the, was the selling point. Basically, the Chinese... Uh, Chinese, you know, a Chinese producer clearly had the idea of how can we tell the story about China's genuine heroism being bombed in Chongqing during World War Two to an international audience? And the answer is, well, you know, you hire an American movie star to uh, to do it. And they put Bruce Willis into it, who, to be fair, appears to have been quite enthusiastic for the problem. He even brought his buddy Mel Gibson in to doctor the script, apparently. So, you know, there's dedication. And actually, on paper, the film had all sorts of elements that actually made you think, well, this is pretty good stuff because, you know, Liu Ye's in it and uh, Fan Bingbing was briefly in it. Then she got into trouble over her taxes and had to be cut out of it, which was another problem. But 
overall, interestingly, you know, got in trouble by somebody who was one of the kind of major popularizers of a new narrative about well, World War II, which is... Well, just really just on that, that's Tui Yongyuan, who, of course, for many yeah. years was, was a well-known t- talk show host in China and actually pioneered the first online and then TV series, War the Kangran, My, My War of Resistance, which you can still find online, actually, on Sohu and has amazing interviews with Guomindang veterans that are well worth seeing if you know if you do have Chinese language and can and can watch some of them. They're, they're very moving. But yes, he and Fan Bingbing fell out and uh, he basically, uh, as we in Britain say, dobbed her in over her tax <laughs> over her taxes uh, and of course she had to be cut out of the movie so the movie went through all sorts of production problems but actually and it's it's well worth seeing i mean i have seen it and it's mm, uh, definitely an experience of one sort or uh, or another but there's a wider point and it was actually made most accurately but cruelly and slightly offensively by a Hollywood uh, writer in one of the magazines, or I think a blog, which I have in there, in which the guy says, oh, Bruce Willis's new movie is coming up. It's all in Chinese. And basically it's about Chinese people fighting Japanese people. Can you imagine anyone in the West wanting to go and see that? And at one level, I think, well, you know, why the hell shouldn't they go and uh, go and see that? At another level, I think we know that the way in which that kind of film we presented actually would find it very, very difficult, even if it had been a better movie, for it to take off in Western movie theatres to actually get that kind of audience really doesn't work. And the, the other example of that is Baba, you know, the 800, yeah. which actually has been, you know, a blockbuster in China. Admittedly, it was released in the West during the pandemic period, but even so, I think in London, even in sort of semi-lockdown, I know, it took like, I think, $1,000 or something in total box. I mean, uh-huh. Something really, yeah. really, you know, maybe that's a little of exaggeration, but, you know, it had almost no traction at all. And actually, it got it got a very poor review from the Times newspaper of London here, a one star out of five, I think, was basically saying... This is jingoistic. And while that's not inaccurate, I, I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to see the movie, um, uh, Kaiser, but while it, it's jingoism it, for the nationalists, well, though, it's I mean, also, it's, it is jingoistic, but it's more interesting than that in all sorts of ways. But the problem yeah. is that the things that are interesting about it, and I think they are many, let's be frank, are probably not that easy to access if you don't have a certain amount of China background. And that's where the problem lies, telling the World War II story to a an international audience as a means of creating the soft power, as a means of creating that moral discourse that we too fought the fascists. It takes an awful lot of spade work, and it's really hard for an authoritarian regime, however technocratic, however consumerist, to tell that story because people living in liberal and democratic societies don't really care to hear it, and I, I understand why. The, the, so let's talk about some of the contributions of the people who have... Uh, tried to to change that narrative, who have tried to give China the post-war that it never had, really. Uh, you mentioned one of them, uh, Hu Chaomu, who is a conservative Chinese leader, who was a very conservative Chinese leader, who was very instrumental, though, in this shift. Uh, but there were other people, these major figures who, who influenced the interpretation of, of wartime history, uh, like Liu Danian, and especially Huang Meijin. Uh, can you talk about their contributions? Absolutely. And of course, when we say that Hu Tiamu was very conservative, we don't mean in a kind of Mitch McConnell way, I, I hasten to, uh, to add. At least, right, uh, right, right, right. <laughs> at least, uh, I don't know, if the two of them ever met, actually, they would probably get on quite well. They were both highly ideological, very rigid, and with zero sense of humor. So, you know, they probably would, would have some things in common. So just, just briefly gloss on these, these, these two characters, because well, one thing that, again, uh, you know, Chinese research friends uh, gave me, which was, you know, a godsend in terms of understanding the mechanics of what's going on, was access to the correspondence of Liu Danian, a veteran historian in China. And I'll use the word in both senses because he had both been on the Long March, but he was also, right. you know, very long lived and very uh, experienced. 
So Yodanian and correspondence of his, which um, I was uh, put onto by research friends in China, enabled to see that actually he was involved in very detailed negotiations, including with figures like the then Prime Minister Li Peng. I mean, this is the early 90s we're talking about, to actually fund this new uh, sort of public understanding of wartime history. And he was very explicit, Liu Den. I mean, he was very well informed. Then it's like, you know, there's recently been uh, commemorations of, of D-Day in the West and President Bush went and a whole variety of other major figures from the Western countries went. We need to be doing this in China while, you know, people are still alive, memories are still alive, and we can help create that sort of uh, sort of story. So it was a very good example, I think, of how... Of course, you know, historians in China, as in other countries, are very concerned with archives and research and all these sorts of issues. But they're also, in some cases, very, very much plugged into the processes of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's aimed to create that sort of nation building, uh, nation building sense. So Liu Danian was, I think, in that was a kind of quite fascinating, pivotal character in, in terms of shaping this uh, this narrative of World War II within China uh, itself. And you mentioned one other character, I think, as well, uh, Kaiser, is that right? Uh, Huang Meijian. That's right. So, um, and then, of course, one of the the sets of heroes, you might say, I think, in the book, and I will use that 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 term, are the very brave generation of uh, academic historians who were basically the first ones in the 1980s to say, and they say very explicitly in a long editorial piece, which I translated some of in, in the book, in the journal... Mm-hmm. Um, the Republican archives. Look, all the history that we've been doing on this period during the Mao years has been lacking and constricted and politically far too correct. And we need to start looking at the wider history. So Huang Meijun is just one of those historians based, at, he's based at Fudan, it was based at Fudan, but yeah. also Nanjing, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and Chongqing down in the Southwest, which look to basically reclaim those elements of history, including the Guomindang's history that have been cut out during the Mao years and say, you need to plug this back into our wider understanding of the um, of the World War II experience. Otherwise, we'll never have an accurate story. And not just the Guomindang, the other element that comes back, thanks to the efforts of that generation of historians, is the American collaborator. Uh, collab- well, t- oh, t- I was okay. going to say the Americans and the British Empire, but the Americans in particular. And then, oh, for sure. Yeah. And then, of course, as I think you were getting to there, absolutely, collaboration with the Japanese. Even for them, that was a quite difficult step to take. And, and even now, when I've talked again, you know, off the record to, to Chinese academic friends. Um, they will say, I say, you know, can you talk about the people who collaborated with the Japanese, Wang Jingwei and these these other figures? And the answer is, yeah, nobody will actually stop you. Although some of the archives have been closed <laughs> up, haven't been open, but it's not really a career builder. You know, that's not kind of the way you want to go if you want to do really um, cutting edge uh, stuff and climb the, uh, the, the, the ladder. But I would say as much as we have, and we have quite a bit on these areas, come because of the contributions of these historians who sort of insisted on pushing open the doors and widening the range of what people talked about inside China when it came to the World War II period. And that's why we have today a really much richer and intellectually very varied set of discussions on the topic in a way that simply was not true, you know, 40 years ago when this process started. Yeah, I mean, I think this just goes to illustrate how emotional this is still for a lot of people. Uh, you relate one very funny anecdote uh, in, in the book about how uh, when a Western scholar and a Japanese scholar st- both sort of make their departures from 
uh, traditional, you know, maybe orthodox historical interpretations, the reaction for Chinese is very different. They, they're they accepting of it when it, a Westerner does it, but when a, a Japanese scholar does it, no way. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is one of the things that they were quite, and again, Chinese friends were frankly, but privately willing to admit that, you know, they, they have huge respect, let's be honest, they have huge respect actually for the scholarship of many, many Japanese academics and of course do invite sure. them on a regular basis. But having said that, they said, at least for some of them, if a Japanese scholar says something that doesn't quite fit a certain type of Chinese understanding, there's an emotional, a negative emotional frisson, you might say, that isn't quite the same if it's an American or a Brit doing it. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, really, I mean, probably one of the most interesting things in, in your last book was how uh, you you looked so closely at Zhou Fuhai and at the Wang Jingwei government. Uh, you've taken a keen interest in, in the collaborators. Uh yeah, yeah, it's 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 really fraught, and I think this we should we should be quick to point out that it's not just the Chinese who are are, are embarrassed about their their traditions of collaboration. No, I think it's yeah. it's fair to say well briefly on that. I and mean, first of all, of course, the French and others still you know have more stories to tell about that and more questions to to answer. It's not just the as Chinese. will the GOP after these four years are finally over. well. Uh, as we're speaking on the day of the election itself, let's not you know jinx any of the results jinx at this it, right, point. Right. Not that we're giving away who we might be supporting. And as a Brit, I don't get to vote anyway. But but just returning to Wang Jingwei for a minute, one of the things that I found most fascinating actually was that even in China today. The verdict is maybe a little bit more varied and even forgiving than you might expect. I mean, we mentioned before that Chinese TV host Tsui Yongyuan, who of course has become quite a mm-hmm. famous, even notorious character in his own right. One of the things he liked to do was push the envelope when he was writing about these issues. And he had his essay, which also I use part of, which says, look, people say Wang Jingwei, you know, the biggest name collaborator really was, you know, obviously an evil man and a traitor. And um, Tsui Yongyuan says, well, hang on, you know, if we hadn't had Wang Jingwei, Maybe we would have had Zhao Jingwei or we might have had Huang Jingwei or, you know, in other words, it wasn't just about him. It was about a mindset that maybe exists in the minds of all people and maybe all Chinese. And we shouldn't spend our time pointing the finger at one man in this case, but rather look at what it is collectively that might make people do this, which was a very sober nuanced sort of thing to say and therefore entirely untypical of what you get in most of the highly nationalistic <laughs> discussions of no, he's a traitor, Han Tian, we mustn't talk about him at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we flicked earlier about um, the fact that that uh, Xi Jinping has sort of officially decreed that the start date of the War of Resistance is now to be moved back six years, almost six years, from July 7th, uh, 1937, to September 18th, 1931, the date of the Mukden incident, Zhou Yiba. Uh, what is the significance of that change? What were the political factors that led to this official change? And what is it that you find um, problematic about that this 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 kind of uh, revision. So I think this is a really interesting example of um, why some of these seemingly abstruse historiographical debates, and you think who on earth could care about this other than, you know, scholars with really very long beards. Um, And actually it speaks to something much, much bigger about the dynamics of Chinese politics. So to explain, until uh, about three or four years ago, um, there were essentially two schools of thought. I mean, there were more than, but let's stick with two schools of thought about when World War II began in China, uh, you know, the one thing we know is it wasn't Pearl Harbor 1941, it wasn't the European War 1939. And most people, including in the immediate aftermath of the war itself, said, you know, it's Banyan and Kangzhan, eight years, 1937, Marco Polo Bridge, 1945, end of World War II. 
no problem. But there was a, a significant group of people who said that actually you have to start it from Joey Ba, the Manchurian incident, when, you know, Manchuria's invaded, it's the Japanese, it's the Guangdong army. I mean, come on, obviously this is the beginning. And it was a scholarly debate and nobody cared about it all that much except scholars. And then it started to gain momentum as something that people wanted politically to be you know, enshrined essentially in, 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 in law. And some, again, of the conversations, that, I mean, it's, it's difficult to get documentation on this, but I got various behind-the-scenes stories that, put most simply, went along the following lines. A lot of people, particularly in places like Dongbei, uh, the northeast of China, the former Manchuria provinces, felt kind of sore. They said, you know, look, we got invaded first. We had to suffer under the Japanese for 14 years, much longer than anyone else. Okay, there wasn't that much actual fighting that took place on our soil during the war years itself, but actually we suffer greatly too. So there was a sort of, um, I want to call it identity politics in a sense of saying, we want a piece of this war story as well. And I think that a combination of those, I mean, I know that there was a lot of historical input and various senior historians were asked to give their opinions. But essentially what happened, I think, January 2017 was this edict went out that basically said previously there was a scholarly debate. Maybe you think it's 1931, it starts, maybe it's 37. Officially now it's 1931, full stop, that's the end of the story, goodbye. And of course what that did was, on the one hand, I guess, to appease people in the northeast of China who wanted to feel that the war was theirs as well. But it also, of course, Mm -hmm. angered a great many historians who said, well, actually, this is a subject of scholarly determination. You can't simply decree that this is the beginning of the the war and and put it that way. But as uh, one of the... Oh, can't you? Well, as as, as one of the historians uh, put it to me with a slightly wry smile on on his face, uh, uh, generally, you know, politicians tend to organise things to get what they they want. So he saw it very much as a politician's gesture, not a historian's gesture. And historical interpretation is often like that. In fact, uh, at one point you write talking about why China is doing this big rethink in the first place, especially when it comes to Japan. Much of the discussion of the war in the public sphere is not really about Japan at all. It is about China and what uh, it's thinking about its own identity today rather than in 1937 or 1945. Uh, Can you unpack that? I mean, it's a, a very big idea and I, I want to give you a chance to sort of uh, say exactly what you meant when, when you wrote that sentence. Yeah, I mean, thank you for that, Kaiser. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I have to say that sometimes, you know, people have said, look, with this new book, uh, uh, if there was one thing you wanted people to take away from it, what would that, that, that be? Um, and I would say that actually an understanding that the assumption is that the most important thing about Chinese nationalism in relation to World War II is that it's about hating the Japanese. And although, of course, we know that there is an element of that and it's, you know, it's disgraceful and it's not, um, you know, it needs to be spoken out against because I think, you know, 70 years on, we should not be talking in those terms. But the main point is that that's a very, very small part of what Chinese people, and that can be anyone from, you know, kind of families who had uh, relatives who were in the war to, uh, you know, people thinking about identities of cities and locations. They are thinking really about Chinese identity today. And the comparison I use here in Britain, because perhaps in some sense it makes more sense, is that round here, you know, everything is World War Two. The COVID pandemic, it's World War Two. Brexit, when we did that, that was World War Two as well. <laughs> and when we were doing that, it wasn't really because we thought about the Germans at all. And people occasionally made some jokes about Angela Merkel, but, you know, for, for anyone sensible, it was really a story that we were telling ourselves about what Britain is today. And for whatever reason, right. you know, World War Two was, was, was the, 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 the metaphor to uh, to go to. So in this particular case, I think that the most important reasons that World War II has been revived are that 
If you're in Chongqing and you're looking to create pride in your city, then this is this moment, as you know, some of the local boosters I've written about um, say that you know Chongqing had its moment as a, a, a briefly a world-level allied wartime capital alongside Moscow, Washington, and, and, and London. You may not think of Chongqing in those categories, but I assure you they do in Chongqing. Or in the case of um, the great historian Su Zhiliang, who was one of the people involved in collecting oral histories of refugees who had, you know, steamed up the Yangtze to go into exile and uh, uh, spend time in, in, in the southwest, um, in the Dahofang, the, uh, the interior. One of them said to him, you know, very explicitly, we're old now. We're glad, we're glad we're collecting our oral histories because we're old now. We're going to die soon. And it doesn't matter that we die, but we were terrified that our stories would never be heard. You know, that's not primarily about the Japanese. That's about Chinese people wanting to understand that right. their stories were part of the national narrative too. It's the same thing as uh, Tsui Yongyuan and his Wada Kangran stories. You know, one of the nationalist veterans he first talked to before giving the interview said, I don't think you should interview me because if you do, my head's going to explode because it just, you know, I, I can't cope with the idea that someone actually wants to hear my story. I mm, think it's yeah. about hearing people's stories and wanting to be heard, to be made to feel dignified and that what you did mattered. And that's about China. That's not about Japan. And there were a couple of books that became very, very popular uh, where writers like Fang Jun and Fan uh, Jianchuai uh, were very different books. They were they knew one another and apparently were, were friendly with one another. But Fang Jun, his book was called The Devil Soldiers I Knew. And, you know, there is quite a bit about in, in, in Japan. Uh Fan Jianchuan's book was called One Person's War of Resistance. Uh, these, to me, seem to be quite divergent strands in this sort of reassessment of, of the war. Can you talk a little bit about, about these two and the, the viewpoints that they represent? I found these two books really interesting contrasts, but also in terms of their similarities. And as you said, I, I believe the two authors do actually know each other quite well. Just to say, actually, Fan Jianchuan has become quite famous in, in recent years because he's the owner of the Jianchuan Museum Complex just outside Chengdu, right. which, you know, may, you may have... I, I, I got to see that. It's like the world's biggest private collection. Uh, of... I was going to say China's, but maybe the Yeah, it could be the world's, China's, actually. Okay. It also, of course, has, amongst other things within his complex... China's only cultural re revolution museum, you know, in private right, hands, obviously. Right. But I should say he's basically a property magnate who's become a big museum founder. And one of the things he found is a museum of the wartime years, which contains huge amounts on the nationalist period uh, of, uh, of the war. And that's what this book he wrote, uh, one, one Person's War of Resistance. So it's, it's, it sounds like a memoir, but it's not a memoir. It's basically um, a catalogue of various artefacts that he values with little kind of reflections on what it means for the identity of the country. So, you know, it could be an ID card from a nurse working on the nationalist side or a, a tin cup yeah, yeah right. exactly that sort of thing so that in a sense I thought was a very interesting in some ways reflective thought that was as I say much more about what the Chinese thought about themselves than it was about the Japanese but you're right to contrast it with Fang Jun who again is also very interesting is now in his 60s I guess but this was a, a book written by someone who was never in the war he wasn't born till the 50s but his dad was Bao Jun. he was in the 8th route army and of course as a sort of youth growing up in the 80s after the Cultural Revolution, discovering dad's history, talking to him for the first time. And Fang Jun's instinct was when he went to Japan to study, to actually go and find Japanese veterans and ask them, you know, what the hell they thought they were doing. And the book, again, is interesting. You know, it is quite nationalistic in some ways, and it's clearly in some ways unforgiving about the Japanese, but it is also an attempt to actually ask serious questions of them and to try and understand. So even though it's on the more kind of uh, confrontational side of the spectrum, it's not crude. It's not something that's written, I think, purely as a means of sort of spewing bile, but rather 
something that's supposed to try and give substance to the idea that actually when fighting the Japanese, both the Chinese and the Japanese have questions to, to answer, which he's trying to, uh, to eliminate. The whole phenomenon of revisitation of the war period, uh, especially when it comes to rewriting the, the, the nationalist uh, side of things in, in, into, into history, it, it strikes me that it's often really just sort of oblique criticism of the official narrative, oblique, not even so oblique sometimes, uh, you know, looking at these historical episodes that maybe aren't as covered in glory. Uh, your book offers a glimpse into some phenomena that I hadn't really, I'd been aware of dimly, uh, but I'd not really looked into. One of them is this Guofen phenomenon, these fanboys and fangirls of the Guomindang and the Republican period, especially uh, fans of the Nanjing decade. Uh, you make it pretty clear that they're a relatively marginal group. Let's be clear about that. And, and you know, even within them, there are very different degrees of sort of KMT fanaticism. How how do they fit into this shifting narrative on the war uh, that's described in your book? Yeah, so briefly, just to describe who these people are, uh, I mean the character. So they're called Guo Fun, and the Fun is a character which is meant to reproduce the the English word fan. So as you say, Guomindang yeah, fan, uh, yeah. fanboys, and I think they are they're mostly boys. Although actually, one of the ones I talk about there is actually a woman. So you know, they, it right, does that's go why across. I gendered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we re- we gendered that. And of course, they they are up against their deadly enemies, the Mao Fun, the fans of Chairman Mao, and they kind of <laughs> have at it. I mean, at one level, I think this is kind of mostly middle aged guys who are trying to get their their, uh, you know, kicks in a way that suits the fact that their lives are kind of, you know, middle class suburban hell riding on the subway back and forth to the, you know, to, <laughs> to, the, to, to, to their workplace. But it speaks to something wider, which is that I think the Guomindang fans, the ones who are talking, you know, at excessive length about, you know, how did this Battle of Shanghai really get won and, you know, could do, could do, could do more, are doing two things. One is a sort of genuine, I think, slightly nerdy and obsessive interest in the wartime uh, period. And what's wrong with that, I, I, I would say, <laughs> combined with a sort of imagined projection of an alternative way of thinking about, you know, what China could have been. And I don't think it has very much to do with the real Guomindang, which was, you know, had plenty of black marketeering and corruption and other things going on. It's more this sort of imagined alternative uh, into alternative universe. And I say that because I just want to put a brief contrast to a book that I found very interesting, which again, you know, uh, Kaiser, I discussed briefly in the, um, in, in, in the book. And that's someone who actually tries to reimagine not the nationalist Kuomintang side, but the communist side. A very interesting historian called uh, Zhu Hongzhao, who wrote a book called yeah. you know, Everyday Life in Yan'an. Now, the book itself, I think, is a very unusual one in terms of publication in China, because it's about the communist headquarters, about Yan'an, where Mao, you know, was, was based throughout that whole time. And it's both very unflinching. You know, it talks about psychological torture and non-psychological torture and the way that, you know, some of the characters, including Lin Biao and the others, didn't really get on with other people. You know, it's not it's a warts and all portrait. And yet it's actually highly affectionate. And at the end, he kind of gives the game away by saying, you know, I'm writing this on Nanjing Road or somewhere, you know, he's in his 40s or 50s, I guess, by that, that stage in the 1990s or, or 2000s and says, you know, I think there are two periods, he says, which really shaped modern China. One is May 4th movement back in 1919, and the other one is Yan'an. And this is someone who actually wants to rediscover not Guomindang, but communism as what he imagines it to have been during those wartime years. You know, something adventurous, fresh, idealistic. Yes, with horrible things happening, but people still with something different from what I think he regards as that very consumerist, very empty face of contemporary China. So, you know, the war story 
The overall story, I think, is that the war story, the narrative, is helping younger people, maybe not incredibly young, but certainly born long after the war, to think about their lives in contemporary China through a lens that helps to give it sort of purpose, moral meaning, all those things we were talking about that make it more than the sum of its parts. And I think that happens both with the, the Guofa and the, you know, the Guomindang fans and the people who want to rediscover actually the communist wartime experience as well. They're, they're sharing in the same, the same sort of narrative, I would say. It's not a project that you're uh, a stranger to. I think when I when I read your book, it struck me that uh, it was kind of a combination of two major currents of your own thinking uh, that were represented by your two previous books, uh, your book on the May 4th movement and your book on, on the war, uh, Forgotten Ally, at least that's what it was called in the U.S. Uh, the new book, I think it's like, it's an intellectual history. Maybe it's a history of ideas of the war in Chinese memory in modern political discourse uh, would is that's I'd say that's a pretty fair characterization very, very fair you indeed think of it yeah as an intellectual history uh, just a couple more topics that I want to get to I know that we've run very long but this is just such a fascinating I'm, conversation I'm having a great time oh. Kaiser and I, I hope the listeners are too but it's always great chatting with you <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's such a pleasure for me. Um, one one I want to talk about is uh, the Cairo Conference, because you devote uh, the better part of a chapter at the end of your book to the Cairo Conference in 1943. I'd wager that a lot of people listening right now don't really know uh, what the substance of that conference was, why it should be something that, that, that uh, Chinese would care very much about, uh, and, and how it would shape their understanding of the war and its understanding of what happened uh, to you know Japanese territories that were taken from China. This is a quote from the actual document produced from the Cairo Conference. It is their purpose that Japan shall be stripped of all the islands in the Pacific which she has seized or occupied since the beginning of the First World War in 1914, and that all the territories Japan has stolen from the Chinese, such as Manchuria, Formosa, or Taiwan, and the Pescadores shall be restored to the Republic of China. Uh, that that I think that that says it. This is what uh, Chinese people have seized on as an explanation of of why, for example, it should have uh, a claim to the Senkaku and Diaoyu Islands. It it should you know why uh, Taiwan should be you know an inalienable part of China. Blah blah blah. Why, why is Cairo so important to China today, and how is it related to its territorial claims? So you're absolutely right, Kajar. I mean, this is the Cairo Conference, 1943, the only occasion where Chiang Kai-shek, as the then Chinese leader, meets with Franklin D. Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. You know, in other words, to the two most powerful Western leaders, really, in the, in the world at that time, at least on the Allied side, and the Chinese leader together for the first time. And the symbolic importance of that moment was huge at the time. And then, to be honest, people tended to forget about it, both in the West and in China. It wasn't talked about very much. So a lot of people were quite surprised to see that it was made a very big deal of just seven years ago in the year 2013, on the 70th anniversary of the signing of the document of which you read out the last part uh, right there. Well, why should this be? Well, it was not primarily, I should say, uh, a sudden dedication by the Chinese Communist Party to an interest in wartime allied conferences, fascinating that the subject might be to, to historians. It was instead an assertion of historical rights to the Jiaoyu Islands, as the Chinese call them, Senkaku of you know, Japanese, that sit in the East China Sea, halfway between uh, the two countries. And what was being said here was essentially a version again of that moral argument that I was putting forward mm -hmm. before, kind of a combination of legal and moral argument. It was that, right. look, you know, people say that these islands don't belong to us, but A, look at this document, and B, 
not only the document, but the fact that, you know, we were fighting and bleeding and, you know, being on the side of righteousness back there in 1943. And as a result, we should have the moral right, certainly over the Japanese, to claim these these islands. And one of the things that I thought was fantastic, because as you've gathered by uh, now, uh, uh, I think, uh, Kaiser, I have a great loving for really bad Chinese movies, which is fortunate because it turns <laughs> out there are quite a lot of them. And there's one, well, actually, to be fair, it's not really bad, but it's a little workmanlike, I think, a movie that was made shortly afterwards on the Cairo Declaration, which was released as a massive uh-huh. blockbuster in, in Chinese movies. But one of the... With a movie poster, by the way, which featured not only uh, Chiang Kai-shek and, and Churchill and... FDR, but also Stalin, I believe, and, 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 and Chairman Mao. Mao. The problem actually, just to divert that one, it was the Chinese internet, who are very sharp people, noted that Chairman Mao was on the poster, even though he was nowhere near Cairo. He was in the cave of Yan'an, and started producing their own mocking versions of the movie posters, saying, showing the Cairo conference, but with uh, Saddam Hussein, Colonel Gaddafi, and I think Xi Jinping <laughs> at, at, at one point. So, you know, it really was, was, was a little ridiculous. But the reason I bring it up is this, that if you see the film it has various lines in it which i think would be extremely unlikely to be uttered by any character in 1943 but say quite a lot about china in 2015 which is when it was made and the line i'm thinking of is when president roosevelt or the character playing him turns to one of his you know hench persons cordell hull or someone i suppose and says we have to give china more authority because china today is becoming a responsible great power I thought, hmm, I thought Zheng Bijian came up with that in like 2005. I don't think FDR said it in 1943. But of course, it was being inserted as a means of making that claim that, look, this is the starting point for where China is today, the responsible great power that, of course, should have islands and seas and any of those particular territorial uh, accoutrements which it uh, desires. So it all comes back to the use of this World War II narrative as a means of providing moral balance as I think I said at one point, for the claims that China wants to make in a very realist fashion in today's world. Two final topics, one, museums, and second, the Korean War and uh, what we've seen just very recently. Let's start with, with, with museums, uh, because as you, you mentioned before, uh, with the museum uh, by the Marco Polo Bridge, uh, this is one, and we, we actually talked a, a little bit about uh, uh, the Gentran Museum in Chengdu. Uh, these... Let's let's focus on on and tie this to to Japan uh, Germany comparisons that are often made. Uh, we've seen the commemoration of the Holocaust suddenly take on sort of a new urgency in China. Uh, how is this project working out for Beijing? Is this is this gaining any traction? This idea that Germany has abjectly apologized has really truly uh, learned the lessons of the Second War and the Holocaust. And that that's just not the case for Japan. I would say that it's an idea, the comparison which is made in quite a few Chinese quarters, that uh, you know Germany apologized to Europe, but Japan has never apologized to China or, or to Asia. But I'd say it's not... Which is it's not true. Which is not true. Not oh, no, so to make that absolutely clear, I do not endorse that idea for a, for a moment. It's, right. it's, it's a misrepresentation. Um, a, because actually we all know that the European response was more complex than that. And second, more to the point, you know, Japan these days is a peace constitution, liberal society with lots of different viewpoints. Yes, there are right-wingers in Japan, but the idea that Japan is essentially pushing the same line as it did in the 1940s is just, you know, completely, completely wrong. So there's no question of endorsing that as an accurate view of the situation. But what is the case is that it certainly has a lot of traction in China itself. And you can see in various different Mm -hmm. ways 
aspects of that desire to try and make a point of comparison with the murder of European Jews, the Holocaust, is notable in various ways. So it comes in all sorts of places. For instance, so if you go to the, the Nanjing Massacre Museum, uh, the design uh, by the architect uh, Chi Kang, which actually the critic Kurt Denton has written quite a bit about, draws many aspects of the design from Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum outside Jerusalem, which again has very distinctive architectures. That's more of a kind of you know architectural note. But more explicitly, you'll find plenty of um, occasions, like for instance the, mag, the journal that relates to that, that museum, uh, talks about sending curators to Yad Vashem to learn from the Israeli experience but with the implication that actually it would go both ways um, uh, as well the reason that I think it doesn't have huge amounts of traction outside is that although I think that the massacre of Nanjing in particular is much better known in the west than it was say 20 years ago and that's partly because of the the best-selling book by the sadly the late Aris Zhang I think it's still generally regarded as being a horrific massacre rather than being directly comparable to the Holocaust, which, of course, is the kind of intentional, right. you know, industrialised murder of, of millions of, uh, uh, of people. But I think the problem also comes because there are indications that the Chinese state has been trying to use it in a, a somewhat clumsy way. And the example that comes to mind is, I think, 2014, when Xi Jinping was visiting Germany and his advance party apparently made it known that he would like to visit the monument to the murdered European Jews in Berlin. And the German government just made very sure this didn't happen because they did not know what he was going to say if giving a speech there. But they feared very much it would be something about Japan that they would find <laughs> completely inappropriate. So the encounter just never happened in that uh, in that occasion. I think that's because there's a feeling that the comparison with the Holocaust is not being done for historical or analytical reasons. It's being done for political reasons. Right. The finger in the eye. Right. And finally, uh, that, that's great. I mean, there's so much more to say. I, I, you flicked at Kirk Denton, uh, who publishes a, a really good newsletter. If you're not already subscribing to it, you should, but uh, has done a lot of work on, on museums and, and historical memory. Uh, let's talk about uh, what we're seeing recent, in recent days. We're, we're taping here, uh, as we said, on Election Day, November 3rd. But we've seen commemoration in China of, of the Chinese entry into the Korean War, which is just a little more than 70 years ago. Uh, viewing this through the lens that you've constructed here with your book, what does this look like to you? Well, I have to say that what's happened, it's, it's, it's a good way to end our conversation, but also it will be a great way for me to end, if there's a paperback edition of the book and I get to write a few you know, more lines at the end, I would add the following thought, because it proves that what's happened in recent weeks shows to me that 2020 is the year of the dueling war analogies, by which I mean this. Back in the height of the summer, August 2020, just three or four months ago as we're recording this, um, the story that China was telling through its commemoration of VJ Day plus 75, 75 years since the defeat of Japan, was that cooperative story about China in the world. You know, China defeats um, Japan with a little help from the Americans and the Brits, but basically, you know, China does it on its own and founds the UN, first signer of the charter, and helps create the world international order from 1945 onwards, which it's now protecting against the evils of Donald Trump. Fantastic, you know, ice creams for everyone. Cut to three months later, in the kind of period that we're talking about now, which is October, November of 2020, and World War II is currently in abeyance, and instead, it's all about the Korean War. And 
you know, for those who know Chinese, knowing that the most common term for that uh, that war in China is not Korean War, but Kangmei, resistance mm-hmm. to America, in the current... Which it, is a parallel well, to, a very, you know, close parallel to Kangri. It really is. I mean, it's the same Kang, exactly, resistance. But yeah. of course, in the current era of trade disputes, military disputes, and all that sort of confrontation between the US and China, it has a very important met- metaphorical value. But it goes beyond that. If you look at what the documentaries that are being produced, one of which I've appeared in, I have to say, from Chinese TV say, they're also talking a great deal about, a great deal about how the Korean War showed that China could carry out you know, self-reliance. Mm-hmm. And that actually is something that emerged in the anti-Japanese war, but it's very strong in the Mao years. In other words, you know, if you're thinking dual circulation economic policy where the domestic economy has to be boosted, the Korean War shows that we Chinese can do it. So that's a very different sort of message. That's not China in the world. That's China against the world. And the fact that within a short period of time, both of these long-distant wars can be pulled out of the metaphor closet and used to tell a story about China suggests that, as I sometimes say, probably ad nauseam, China's recent wars really aren't history. They're very much current affairs. Very much. And your book illustrates that better than any that I've read recently. It's, it's so such a great book. Thank you so much for taking the time once again. The book is called China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Rana, let's move on to recommendations. But first, a quick reminder that the best way to support the work that we're doing with Seneca at all the network shows is to subscribe to our Sup China Access newsletter. If you aren't already subscribing, please do. It's really amazing. You're going to find that it is money well spent. Okay, recommendations. Rana, you've got a, a novel or something for us? Yeah, I mean, there are, so, we, there are so many wonderful things out there, but I recently had the opportunity both to read and have a conversation with um, someone who I freely admit I did not know about before, but have discovered, and that is perhaps Mozambique's most prominent novelist, and that is a novelist, Miyakuto, uh, born and bred, and lived through the, the Civil War of Mozambique in the 70s, and he writes about mm. wars as well, so there's a war theme, but it's an older war, it's something called the Gaza War, that took place in the 1890s in what was then Portuguese Southwest Africa, uh, sorry, Southeast Africa, and the novel is called uh, The Sword and the Spear, it's an extraordinary piece of writing, or at least it's brilliantly translated from the Portuguese, uh, which I think reflects the brilliance of the of the original. And it's a tale about a journey upriver by a wounded Portuguese soldier who's befriended by a young uh, African woman uh, and what befalls them on the way. And there's everything from a touch of magical realism here to some pretty, you know, brutal colonial encounters there. Uh, it encompasses a whole variety of African-European encounters uh, in a story that actually just made me keep wanting to turn the page and turn the page and keep uh, reading. So The Sword and the Spear by Miyakuto is something that I'd highly recommend if you have a chance to read it. Oh, sounds great. I'll definitely get on that. I want to recommend two things. One is uh, a piece that I just read last night uh, in The New Yorker. It's by James Summers, S-O-M-E-R-S. Uh, and it's on how the coronavirus hacks the immune system. But it more than that, it, it, it offers a sort of uh, potted history of the whole science of immunology. And I, I want to single this out because it's it's a piece of writing that does not insult the intelligence of, of the of the reader at all. It, it actually is willing to wade into some very difficult science. And it does it really admirably well with just great clarity. Uh, a lot of stuff just sort of came back to me from my AP biology class back in, you know, ancient history now but uh it's it's really good if you want a sort of crash course in immunology a very complicated science uh it's it's a really good good article how the coronavirus hacks the immune system uh the other is a pop culture thing it's a 
superhero or sort of anti-superhero uh, series on Amazon Prime called The Boys. Uh, it's really interesting to me uh, with this one to see how our current social concerns just get written and very quickly, I think, into uh, the premium you know cable television shows that that, that, that come out. It's, it's sometimes done way too on the nose, sometimes uh, in a way that it obviously sort of, you know, they were trying to keep up with the Joneses. The Watchmen had this great social justice storyline, so so too must this. Uh, but this one is, is, is not either too on the nose or, you know, too subtle and too clever. It's, it's actually quite in between. It's also just a good ripping yarn. Uh, it's got a nice gooey middle love story and all that. Uh, I really enjoyed both seasons of it so far, so I would recommend it. The Boys on Amazon Prime. Rana, what a pleasure, man! I'm I'm sorry, listeners, that this ran long, but I'm sure if you enjoyed this half as much as I did, you're you're in a forgiving mood. So, well, I had a huge pleasure as ever, Kurt, and it's always great to talk to you, and I hope we've entertained the listeners as as well. Fantastic book, Rana. Uh, I I hope that uh, that everyone rushes out to get it because it's it's actually a really short read. You can sit down and and, and get through it in five or six hours. I think, um, very very good, That's- very good book. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed, Kurt. A pleasure, and I hope it won't be too long before we're conversing again. Oh, it won't be. We will we'll hit you up again soon to get you back on the show because you're just the, the, my favorite guest. So, The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.